You're listening to audio from Mercy Hill Church of Port Austin. To learn more about us, you can visit mercyhillpa.org. Life in general, in really every category, is a very unstable thing. It's a very fragile thing. Um, If you were to just go through um, the list of different topics in your life um, and think about your health, think about your finances, think about your family, think about your friends, your job, your possessions, and we could keep going, but all of these things really could just be gone in a moment, right? That one phone call could change in any, in any of these categories, um, that one phone call could change it all. And, and the idea of that, the reason I bring that up is because they're, they're unstable, they're shaky, they're unreliable places, and yet these are the types of things that if we're honest, we often anchor our hopes in, in this life. My health, my finances, my family, my career, we, we put our hopes in these things and they're very shaky things to put our hopes in. They're very unreliable things to put our hopes in. And, and the longer that I, I live, the more I understand how important it is to have proper expectations. And that's why when I bring up these things, I just want to remind you that the Bible tells us not to put our hope in those things, but to put our hope in God and who he is and what he's done. Because the longer I live, the more I realize expectations can really shape how you live this life in either a positive way or a negative way. And a lot of times the frustrations of this life are because of unmet expectations. Okay, and so if you've ever noticed in the arguments that you have with your spouse, I want you to think about it this week. How many of those arguments just began with simple unmet expectations? That's really all it was. Now, I wouldn't understand that because pastors don't fight with their wives, but <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure the rest of you get it, right? <laughs> Shannon's like, oh, you talk to me after the service, right? <laughs> But, but in something small like that, right? Or I'll give you another illustration. This past week, um, our dryer broke, and so we got a new motor, and I pulled it all apart, and I was putting the new motor in it, and I was like, it was after Bible study Wednesday night, and I was like, I'm going to finish this really quick, Shannon, and it'll probably take me a half hour. You know, it, was like, it was like two and a half hours, right? Like, but it's those expectations that we set, then that's when it gets frustrated, when I can't get the door back on the dryer for some reason, and I'm frustrated in that moment because I thought this was only going to take this long. And we joke about that because it's, it's so common in, in every little day things, but it's really, really not something to joke about in the big things because we're going to be completely taken off guard in this life if we have the wrong expectations for what this life can give us. And over and over and over, the Bible is going to tell us, hey, put your hope in Jesus and nothing else because everything else is shakable. Everything else can let you down. Everything else can shock you when it doesn't meet the expectations that you thought. And that's why theology is so important. You know, it's crazy to me that when you look at this book of Hebrews and you know the context, it's written to these believers who are, who are questioning, well, should I just go back to Judaism? I don't know. And they're, they're going through kind of a, a shock of what it means to be a Christian. Oh, wow, this does have suffering involved in it. And, and they're wondering, should I go back? And rather than just give them like practical steps, you notice how much deep theology he gives them in this book? And I don't know how many times I've heard, you know, I don't need theology. Just give me something practical. No, we need the truths of God. We need to know what is true about God, what is true about ourselves, what is true about others, what is true about this world, if we are going to have the right expectations to make it through this life. And, and that's the same with everything, including the Christian life. And if you think, for example, if you think that the Christian life is going to be happy and pain-free for the most part, then you're going to be disappointed. By the way, if you think life on this earth is going to be happy and pain-free, for the most part, you're going to be disappointed. That's why in Christianity 101 with the early church, 
You know, we do in, in Discipleship 101, we talk about like a statement of faith or, or maybe a church covenant or things like that. Like, or how to pray or how to read your Bible. Discipleship 101 in the early church, through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom. What? <laughs> that is not a good way to start this whole thing. Are you kidding me? Yeah, you're going to have to suffer. Why? Because you follow a suffering Savior. There's literally a category in theology called the messianic woes. That because we follow a Savior who is a, a Messiah who experienced woes and suffering and discouragement in this life, we will follow him in the same thing. Revelation is all about how the church is going to suffer, how the church is going to experience hardships in this life. But, but our hope is not in this life. And so if we have the right expectations, we can make it through. And what we see in this passage today is, again, a lot of deep theology in the beginning. He's going to go deep and really, in an awesome way, kind of tie all the theology back together from the book. But then he's going to go practical. And so, so theology that just fills our minds and gives us big heads, is, it, doesn't, it doesn't do what it was intended to do. Theology always needs to go from our heads to our hearts into our hands. It should change the way we live. Otherwise, we're just deceiving ourselves. And so this, this preacher, he's so wise, and he, he, he brings all the theology of the book together in the beginning, and then he goes really practical at the end as he wraps up chapter 12. And what he wants to do is he wants to tell these people the unshakable thing that they can anchor their hope in. That's kind of a, a big takeaway from this passage, that there is, even though everything in life is shakable, everything in life is unsustainable, everything in life is, is something that it's unreliable. You don't know if it's going to be there tomorrow. There is one thing that is unshakable. It's Jesus and his kingdom. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the beginning of this passage. And I'm going to borrow this title from Dr. Michael Kruger. He called this section A Tale of Two Mountains. I thought that was pretty clever. Um, and what you'll see in 18 through 24 is he's going to use two mountains to bring together all the theology of Hebrews for us. Um, and then close with application. And so this is a really, really remarkable thing. I said this in the beginning of the book. This guy, um, obviously filled by the Spirit, but this guy was a remarkable writer. And what he does here is he's going to pull together these two mountains and compare and contrast them to give us the main message of the book of Hebrews. What he's going to do is he's going to contrast Mount Sinai, which we read about in the Call to Worship in the Old Covenant, with heavenly Mount Zion in the New Covenant. And so first, look at Mount Sinai in verses 18 through 21. He doesn't call it Mount Sinai here, but we know that's what he's talking about. If you were listening in the call to worship, it's very similar. In verse 18, he tells these, these believers, these, these, these Christians who were on the edge, should I stay? Should I continue? Should I persevere? Should I believe? Maybe there was some in the audience that wasn't a Christian yet, and they were deciding whether or not to become a Christian. Here's what he says to, to this group of people that are really struggling. He says, you have not come to what may be touched. It's not, this isn't an earthly, physical mountain. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So again, this is a short overview of what went down in Exodus 19. You can read about it later. In Exodus 19, when God entered into a covenant with Israel. In summary, it was absolutely terrifying in every sense of the word. The people saw this blazing fire 
At the same time, they saw this darkness. At the same time, they, they felt this gloom. I mean, how do you describe just seeing and experiencing gloom? And then they've got this howling windstorm. It's a tempest going on. And they heard the blast of the trumpet. And in Exodus, it says this trumpet, it just gets louder and louder and louder. And, and all of a sudden, out comes lightning and thunder. And out of the thunder comes this loud, booming voice that just completely terrifies the people. So much so that they beg for God to stop talking to them. Can you imagine the privilege of hearing the voice, the actual physical voice of God, and being so completely terrified by it, please stop talking to us. We cannot handle it. That's what's going on here. And, and he makes the point um, even stronger when he says that there was this trepidation and this fear over the command that everyone who touches the mountain, man or beast, would be stoned to death. And even Moses himself. He highlights Moses. Why? Because Moses was the guy... The Bible says that the Lord spoke to him face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Like Moses was like, he was tight with God, <laughs> like, right? Like he, like he was like, man, and he, look at how Moses responded to this. He trembled with fear in the presence of this awesome, all-powerful, almighty God. And so this whole scene screams, God is holy, God is terrifying, and God will destroy you if you come too close. Why? Because you are a sinner and he is sinless. Because you are darkness and he is light. Because you are unholy and he is the perfection of holiness. This is the scene at the first mountain in this tale of two mountains. This is the scene when God gave the old covenant at Sinai. Now contrast that with the new covenant in the heavenly Mount Zion. Mount Zion was where David put the Ark of the Covenant and became known as the dwelling place of God. And so it's picked up by the biblical writers as a picture of God's heavenly dwelling. Okay, And so notice what he says about Mount Sinai in verse 22. But you have come. So he says you haven't come to what can be touched, this Mount Sinai. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So again, he's contrasting Mount Sinai with heavenly Mount Zion. He says, you haven't come to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion. This is a description of the heavenly Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God. And what do we find here? An innumerable number of angels celebrating the glory of God alongside the assembly of all the saints who are enrolled in heaven, who've been redeemed. I want you to imagine the largest stadium, the largest crowd that you've ever been in, just packed full of people cheering and celebrating, and then multiply that by an innumerable number. Like the largest, I mean, imagine this crowd of people just celebrating the glory of God. That's what is being described here. God, the righteous judge of all, is there. And all the saints who have gone before us are there, the righteous now made perfect. Now at this point, if you're a careful reader, if you're a, even if you're kind of a middle-of-the-pack theologian, you might have a question. I thought that the God of the Old Testament was the same God as the New Testament. I've heard you criticize, Pastor Michael, that people say that this is God of wrath, this is God of love. Then what's going on here? This seems like that's validating that, right? And so you may have a question, why was Sinai so terrifying and Mount Zion is so heavenly and celebratory? What is, what is going on here? Because God is still holy and we are still unholy. God is still just and we are still sinners. So this is a great question. 
Why is this mountain so joyful and celebratory? And the answer to that is found in verse 24. In fact, the only reason that any of this is possible is verse 24. Look at it with me. It says, we have also come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, the reason we can come to Mount Zion in the presence of God and all of his angels without being consumed in a moment is because of Jesus and his shed blood on our behalf. Abel's blood cries out in judgment and says the price must be paid. It was a cry of vengeance, of justice. Christ's blood cries out in mercy and says the price has been paid. It's a price of forgiveness that has been paid. One commentary put it this way. This text assures us, I love this, it assures us that Jesus' sprinkled blood has silenced Sinai's tears and ushered us into the Father's favor. How awesome is that? In summary, at Mount Sinai, we see God's terror and judgment. But at Mount Zion, we see God's mercy and grace. And it's all because of Jesus. This is the difference. This is the difference between going before God unmediated or mediated. Listen, if we went to Mount Zion... It would be just as terrifying as Sinai without Jesus. <laughs> we need the mediator. And so that's why every, every time we come here and worship, that first prayer in the beginning of worship is, is a prayer of adoration and confession. God, we are sinners. We are unjust. We are unworthy. We are unholy in our own selves. But thanks be to God who gave us Jesus Christ and brought us peace with God. And so it's through the gospel that we come here today. The only reason we can sing, the only reason we can worship you is through the blood of Jesus, the mediated blood of Jesus. As the song says that we sing often, no wrath remains for us to face. We're sheltered by your saving grace. We're sprinkled with your blood. How sweet the sound of saving grace, Christ died for me. And so this passage reminds us that the new covenant community, also known as the church, we haven't come to a terrifying Mount Sinai. That through Jesus now, we come to the heavenly Mount Zion and it's a celebration. It's joy, it's worship, it's peace, it's the presence of God. And so, by the way, our church, also known as the New Covenant Community, our church should be marked by these things, by joy, by the presence of God, by grace with one another. Why? Because this is, this is how we've been accepted by God himself. And so we should be marked by these things in our own lives and as a church. If you've had a time where you've repented of your sins and turned to Jesus, you have come to Mount Zion. The, the very dwelling place of God himself. What a privilege. However, I also must warn you that if you haven't repented and believed the gospel, you will go through Mount Sinai. You will face a perfectly holy and just God who will by no means clear the guilty, it says in Exodus. And so what do we do with that? If you're here and you've never come to Jesus... You need to stop putting it off if you're putting it off. You need to stop saying, well, one day. You need to look at this Mount Sinai and see the terror of a just God and recognize, I am a sinner separated from God, and I will receive all of this holy wrath if I don't repent of my sins and believe in Jesus. But today, you're welcome to do that, to look to Jesus as the perfect substitute in your place, the one who absorbed this wrath, the one who died on the cross for sins, who rose again triumphantly. And by faith, you can cast yourself on him alone right now and be saved. So that you can say with the rest of us, we're at Mount Zion 
and its joy and its grace and its celebration and it's all because of Jesus. We are not at Mount Sinai. That's the awesome glory of the new covenant. Now, this brings us to the application because our, our preacher now wants to answer this question. Well, what do we do with this? How do we respond to this message of Sinai and, and Zion and this tale of two mountains? Well, what do we do with this? And what he's saying basically is this, is if it's true that we as Christians have come to this heavenly Mount Zion, what should our lives look like? Well, they should look like faithfulness, like thanksgiving, and like worship. And so how should we respond? We respond, first of all, with faithfulness. Look at verse 25. So in other words, he's saying, see, in light of this, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. You see the argument here? It's a simple Lesser to greater argument. If the people of Israel were punished by refusing the warning on earth at Mount Sinai, how much worse is it going to be for those who have heard this glorious good news of the gospel from heavenly Mount Zion and still rejected it? How much greater punishment will there be? In light of this warning, we should respond with faith. We should stay faithful and keep trusting God. We should keep believing his new covenant promises. We should persevere in the faith. Remember, this group was kind of teetering on the edge. Do I stay with this? And he's saying, if you leave, that's fine, but you're going back to Mount Sinai. And he said throughout this book that if you leave, it's almost like you can't be brought again to repentance. It's a scary, terrifying thing. He's saying, yeah, go ahead. If you leave Jesus, that's fine. That's your choice, but you're going to have to go through Mount Sinai and you're going to have to accept wrath and so he's saying no don't leave instead be faithful keep trusting keep believing and so remember this this whole letter really you could summarize it as a letter written to those who were were questioning thinking about leaving and and this whole letter is written to keep them from apostasy from abandoning the faith and how does he kind of bring that 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 argument to a climax in chapter 11 he says how do we persevere by faith we look to Jesus with the eyes of faith, and we continue down the path before us. And so he brings all the theology together, the old covenant, the old mountain, the old sacrifices, the old systems compared to this heavenly Mount Zion, and he brings those together, he compares and contrasts them, and he says, okay, here you go. One last time I'm telling you, keep believing Jesus. Do not abandon the faith. I don't care how hard it is. I don't care how difficult it is. I don't care about your family abandoning you. I mean, he does care. He's very, he's very peaceful throughout this and calming and comforting. But, but he's saying, I don't care what in your life is tempting you to leave Jesus. It is not worth it. Stick with Jesus. Keep believing Jesus. Do not abandon the faith. I told you a few weeks ago that we sin because of our desires. We're desiring beings and that those desires drive our actions. I said if Moses was here, if you remember, he'd come up here and he'd say, your desires are too weak. You need, to, you need to desire the greater pleasure that is found in God. But at the root of those sinful desires, if we were to kind of go a little bit deeper, at the root of those sinful desires is unbelief. When we don't do what we know we should do, it's because we don't truly believe God. We believe the promises of sin are better than the promises of God. And this is true with every sin. Just like, just like Eve in the garden. Do you remember? They've got this whole garden. They've got everything they could ever imagine. I mean, life is good. It really is good. And, and there's this one tree. And what does Satan do? He says, you know, God, he's holding out on you. There, if, you could, if you could taste this tree, Eve, man, you don't understand. God is holding out on you. And it's the same lie today. 
Every time we're tempted to sin, whether it's lying, whether it's gossip, whether it's sexual immorality, whether it's drunkenness, whether it's stealing, whether it's bitterness, whether it's coveting, you name it. In our foolishness, we are blinded by this false promise of sin that if I do this right now, I'm going to be happier. It's going to be better. It's going to be good for me. And so at the root of these sinful desires is unbelief. When you sin, when you respond sinfully, when you act sinfully, when you make sinful choices, you don't believe God. You show yourself to not believe God. You instead believe the promises of sin. And so our author is beginning to land the plane of application. And he once again wants to remind these people, believe God. Keep trusting God. Increase your faith. Read the Bible. Hear the word preached. And keep believing. Keep looking to Jesus. Keep persevering by faith. So we respond with faithfulness. If we've come to Mount Zion, if it's true that we've, we've been welcomed into the very presence of God himself, then we should respond by keep believing. With every fiber of our being, believe that we've actually come to this mountain. But next he says we should respond with thanksgiving. 26, speaking of Mount Sinai again, he says this. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only earth, but the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful. There's our idea. Let us be grateful. Let us have thanksgiving. Why? Because we've received this kingdom that cannot be shaken. This is another really simple argument. He says he shook the physical earth when he spoke at Mount Sinai. They, they felt it. It was like an earthquake at the mountain. They, they felt the physical earth shaking. But one day in the future, he's going to speak again. And this time, he's not just going to shake the earth. He's going to shake the entire cosmos. The heavens and the earth are going to shake. And only what is unshakable will remain. When I was studying this this past week, George Guthrie illustrated this with a marble and a clump of dirt. He said, you put a marble in a clump of dirt and and shake that all around. All the dirt's going to fall and the marble will remain. And that's the picture here, that God is going to shake the heavens and the earth. And the only thing that's going to stay is what is unshakable. Well, what is unshakable? It's the kingdom of God. And that's why he's saying we have this unshakable kingdom. We should be thankful for that. All the things of this earth that we treasure so much and put so much time and energy in, our houses, our cars, our 401ks, our church buildings, our country, the great United States of America, along with every earthly kingdom you want to name, all of those things will be shaken and gone in a moment. But God's kingdom will remain. And thankfully, for those of us who are Christians, we have this unshakable kingdom. We have this heavenly kingdom, this eternal kingdom. And the scriptures say that our salvation is so comprehensive that right now we should live as citizens of heaven. Wherever you find yourself, in Africa, Asia, North America, wherever you find yourself, you should ultimately be a citizen of the heavenly kingdom in the way that you live. This unshakable kingdom that no one or nothing on earth or beyond earth can take from you. This is an incredible thing. And so what he's saying is, you should be thankful. We should be grateful. We should be marked by thanksgiving. My commentary put it this way. God has a kingdom that is so unshakable that it will survive when all else dissolves. And so we should be marked by thanksgiving. Have you ever thought about how your life would be changed if you just learned to live in constant thanksgiving to the Lord? 
I mean, it would come, talk about, we go back to expectations, right? We expect things and we're, we get very entitled and we get very upset. And, and really, it's just a sophisticated version of that little baby that you raise. That you, you see a baby and they cry when they don't get their bottle or their nap, right? That's how we act sometimes when things don't go our way. We're just more sophisticated, right? And, and so, so we live with this entitled expectations and we get frustrated and annoyed. But what if we just had thankfulness? What if we just said every single thing in my life is a gift from God? Like, why would I be like Israel and murmur in the wilderness? Oh, this manna. Why would I do that? He's, he's given me everything. It reminds me of this, this conference the past summer when Pastor Bob Johnson, you remember it? Some of you brought it up multiple times. That's why I'm bringing it up again. Because I said, what is your, one of your biggest weapons for fighting against sin? And, and we joked about this in table talk last week. I'm kind of a violent person. And so... I picture like, like choking sin out in my life, right? And he's like, thankfulness. I'm like, man, that's really biblical, actually. And, and that is what the Bible prescribes for fighting sin, thankfulness. But think about it. It's hard to be bitter and unforgiving when you're thankful for God's forgiveness in your life. Right? If God has forgiven me every single sin, why would I be bitter and unforgiving to someone else? It's hard to be prideful when you're thankful for God's grace in your life. And you realize that the only reason you're a Christian is because of his grace. It's hard to fall into sexual sin and immorality when you're thankful for God's gift of a spouse. It's hard to covet and be discontent when you're thankful for God's blessings in your life. Listen, whatever the sin is, I want you to think about the sins that you struggle with. We're all different. We all have different sins that we struggle with. And so whatever your sin is, I want you to ask yourself, what false lie am I believing? Going back to that last point. And so reject that lie. But then also, what would thankfulness look like instead of this? And we put off the sin and we put on thankfulness. Next time you're struggling, just sit down and list out as many blessings as you can think. Your salvation, your spouse, your Bible, your children, your house, your health, the air you breathe, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the food you eat, the fact that you've come to this heavenly Mount Zion. It's incredible how thankfulness can shift your perspective on things. The old hymn put it nicely when they said, When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. I can't tell you how many times I've done this in my life, and it just totally shifted my perspective on an issue. Like, I, I can't even stand up in the morning and take a step without God's grace. Everything in my life is gift. Everything. And so why would I not be marked by this thanksgiving, this thankfulness? And so, again, this, this really goes back to when we sin, we question God's word, we question his character, we re refuse to believe that he is good, and we go our own way and do our own thing. But if we go back to just, man, we should be thankful for what God has given us, it'll completely change our perspective. Don't be deceived. Sin always makes promises that you cannot take that check and cash it. It will never deliver. So fight the promises of sin with the power of thankfulness to God. That's what he's telling this group. Man, I know, I know you're like struggling. I know you're going through some hard times, but keep believing. And man, be grateful that you've come to this heavenly Mount Zion. Be marked by thanksgiving in your life. But lastly, he says this. We should be marked with worship. We should respond with worship. 28 through 29, it says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship 
with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. In summary, he's saying in light of the fact that we have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly dwelling place of God himself, in light of the fact that we have this unshakable kingdom that nothing on earth can take from us, in light of the fact that we have these glorious new covenant promises, and in light of the fact that God is still this consuming fire, let us worship with reverence and awe. Let us rejoice and tremble in his presence. Let us treasure him above all else and live these lives of awe-inspiring awareness of the great privilege we have to know him and love him and worship him. I love this part because it kind of goes back to that question. Is, isn't the God of the old covenant the same as the new covenant? And I like how he just kind of tucks in there at the end. Our God is still a consuming fire. And so there should be reverence and awe. We are, we are able to worship him and we're welcome into his throne room because of the blood of Jesus. But we still have this awe, this, this reverence, this inspiring, like, I cannot believe I know this God. I cannot believe I get to talk with him and that he'll actually listen to me. I, I can't believe that I get to come on Sundays and worship with his people. I cannot believe this. He is holy. He is still awesome. He is still inexpressibly glorious in every way. And so we're welcome to this heavenly Mount Zion, this kingdom that cannot be shaken, the very presence of God himself. And so let's worship him. Let's worship him in every area of our lives. Let's do everything we do for the glory of God with praise, adoration, thanksgiving, and love for who God is and what he's done in our lives. And by the way, if you notice in that theology section on Mount Mount Zion, it says we have come. It's like we're already here. And so every Sunday, this passage says every Sunday when we gather together and we sing these praises, we're joining a worship, a worship service that's already taking place in the heavenlies with this innumerable number of angels and all the redeemed that have gone before us. And so when the crowd is low or when the crowd is big, we are in the biggest worship service of all time every single Sunday before the glory of God. That's what we, we've come to this Mount Zion. I want you to think about that next time you pull into the parking lot. There's a little picture of us coming up to Mount Zion in the presence of his glory and all of his angels and all of the redeemed that gone before us. And this is a chance. Once a week, I get to come and I get to worship, go all in and worship this God with reverence and awe. What a privilege. And so as we zoom out and look at this passage as a whole, we see that Jesus is a greater Moses who brings us to a greater mountain because of his greater sacrifice. A mountain of joy and rejoicing in the presence of God. We see that Jesus is a greater prophet who speaks a greater word. One of grace, mercy, and welcoming into his presence. We see that he's a greater priest who brings a greater covenant. One of inner transformation and full forgiveness of sins. And ultimately we see that Jesus is a greater king. Who brings us to a greater kingdom. One that is unlike any other. One that can never be shaken. And so why wouldn't we be faithful to this king? Why wouldn't we be thankful? Why wouldn't we worship? He has done and will continue to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And so as we close, I just want to leave you with this simple truth. Rejoice in your king and his unshakable kingdom. I want you to imagine how that would change this week. If tomorrow you woke up and just rejoiced in Jesus and the kingdom, this unshakable kingdom, when everything in this day This Monday, everything is shakable. Everything is unstable. Everything could be taken away from me. But this kingdom will never be taken away. I'm going to rejoice in my king in his unshakable kingdom. I want you to honestly do that. I want you to take note this week of all the things in your life that are shakable. 
your family, your job, your health, your house, your finances. And then remember your king. Remember that he has brought you into a kingdom that is unshakable. When you're tempted to sin, remember the pleasures of sin, they're shakable. They will pass away. And so keep staying faithful to God. When you're discouraged by life, remember the unshakable blessings of God in your life and be thankful. And whatever you do this week, remember to treasure God above all else and worship him. Love him, know him, sit in his presence and just, just be in awe of the fact that I get to know this God. That he calls me his people, that he loves me with an unshakable love and has brought me into an unshakable kingdom. Rejoice in your king and his unshakable kingdom.